Hello world, retrieving Brad and Christy from the cloud. Hello, I'm your host, Brad Rayford. And I'm Christy Hornland. Welcome to the Risk Factors Perspectives in IoT podcast. Today, we're speaking to Sumit Segel, Strategic Product Marketing Director, about how we embed security in a hospital and how the internet of medical things is affecting the entire hospital experience. Let's dive in. Uh, well, Sumit, thank you for, for joining us today. Uh, we're we're going to be talking about MedTech uh, and some of the cool things that are happening out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I want to start, I got, I got a question for you. Sure. And last night, I'll admit, I couldn't go to sleep. And when I did, I was so excited for this. I dreamt about this doing this interview. Wow. Uh, and so like, <laughs> I feel like I've already done it. And I wish I could, I, I wish I could remember if it was a good interview <laughs> at the end of the dream, or if I was like, oh no, shouldn't do that. But what I did want to start with, and and the question is, what is your favorite future looking type of uh, medicine, be it from a book, movie, uh, a comic? What do you, when you think of the future of medicine, what is it that is like the coolest thing you, you can imagine? I think it's all from a technology perspective, right? I, I, I'm a little science fiction nerd, so what I see in Star Trek, I think I like better. So especially Discovery, the new show that came out. So one of the things I like is the customized nature of medicine in that way, right? That it's not so much the condition is being treated as a disease. It's more like the condition is being treated in respect to how it's affecting your body. So that is what I feel intrigues me in the space that we're going um, with some of that is starting to happen now, or at least the, the theory is getting converted to some experimental use type of thing. But in my mind, the future of medicine that would be my perfect would be essentially be like, hey, instead of taking all these drugs and, uh, you know, trying to put a guesswork to say, hey, let's try this and see how the person's reacts. Right? Let's see how someone reacts to that. Instead of that, it's like, here, here's the medicine that's coded for your genome for the type of flu that you have. And you're better in like two days as opposed to trying to navigate it and deal with it for two weeks type of thing. That would be my perfect utopia um, of the future. You know, I, I I completely agree with you. When I was thinking of how would I answer this, it was Star Trek, mm-hmm. right? First, it's like, oh, I want to have the tricorder. So they <laughs> just like, and I they know what's wrong with me. Mm-hmm. But what I really like is, uh, you know, the treatment is so mm-hmm. fast and mm-hmm. it, it immediately resolves the pain and the issue. Yeah. Now, contrast that, and Christy, I want to get your opinion on on these as well. What is your, uh, depending on what your viewpoint is, you're either your favorite or your most feared dystopian view of future medicine. For dystopian? Mm -hmm. Oh, man. I'm reading a book right now that is fully based on, on somebody's child getting really ill. And what they end up doing is they get this, like, robot that comes in and helps kind of take care of that child. But what ends up happening is that what they're doing is actually having that robot mime the child. And Mm -hmm. so eventually, when that child passes because they don't have the medical technology, what actually happens is that the robot assumes the character of that child and continues in life. My dystopian like fear is we don't put enough guardrails on the biases that are in the algorithms that are kind of giving birth to the AI and ML that's going to be leading that effort. And certain segments 
of population are going to get favored for certain things than others. So that's um, that's my concern. That not even though we're saying it's going to treat everybody equally, I don't think it's going to happen like that. So wow, I mean, I thought mine was uh, pretty bad, and then God, you took a man just blew me away <laughs> with with your views. So I, I read a book a long time ago uh, by Michael Crichton called The Fifth Vial, mm-hmm. right? And it was essentially uh, the idea that when you go to get a blood draw or a blood test, mm-hmm. there's four vials that are usually yeah. taken. But in this, in this reality, they took a fifth vial yep. and they use that to map your genome mm-hmm. and figure out who were the world leaders and globally important people who would need your organs <laughs> at yeah. one day in the future. Yeah. Right. And they would keep track of you and hunt you down. And so in this, in this story, you know, they took uh, the, the main character was a, a track athlete and so her lungs were very desirable Mm -hmm. and they gave her lungs to like a tech billionaire because he was deemed more strategic to the world economy Mm -hmm. and great great story but that has been haunting me but i think now i'm going to be haunted by the little robot person (laughs) that is going to replace me because i think my kids would be like oh that sounds great we can have a robot dad uh hopefully that never happens I love my kids. So, Samit, I did, I did a little cursory research. Uh, sure. You've got a, a long history in the, the med healthcare space, right? Mm-hmm. 14 plus years in actual healthcare IT, mm-hmm. uh, be it through medical systems, hospitals, or, or others, mm-hmm. before you made the transition into a tech innovation, consulting professional services uh, yes. role. Yep. So what, what was the driver there? for you to make that switch from working in the healthcare IT systems to the, the other side? Well, healthcare IT is all, of that, all that I knew, right? Coming out of college, um, had internships in uh, rural hospitals, rural health systems. I, I joke that I've, I've gone from rural hospitals to for-profit health systems to safety net health systems, so kind of seen the different aspects of, you know, the, how care is delivered, at least in the U.S., and gone through the different scale areas right that they all complain that they don't have money to do things right but there's a different scale that happens when you are, are a 200 bed hospital as opposed to a 2000 bed hospital like, like that scale so having gone through that experience and learning from it a long time ago where i was doing security systems engineering as a background and this was a, this is a, it's a good story for you guys is I went, this was my second internship, and we were doing some security scanning. Now, I didn't actually check box a safe check option, and by launching the scan, I brought down OR, uh, server processing, the interfaces, a whole bunch of other stuff. I thought when I was going to be let go, instead of that, we actually had to produce root cause. And following that, uh, that conversation with the CEO and the leadership, we took a walk. Right, my mentor, my CEO, my the chief nursing and clinical and medical officer, we went to walk in, and for a twenty-year-old at that point, it's having a visceral experience that says, "Okay, that person sitting there for an extra thirty minutes because the care is delayed," mm-hmm. that was very, very impactful to me as a person. So that kind of that's kind of solidified my want to be in healthcare. So fast forward fifteen, sixteen years, when the chance came, it was like, "Hey, let's." See how the sausage is made on the other side, because in the at least in the U.S. we do use a lot of off-the-shelf software, right? We we're more favorable for configuration as opposed to customization. So so that's where I was like, well, let's go on the security side at least and and lead healthcare strategy there to see how can we bake effective security inside healthcare from an operations perspective and not only just 
care delivery and medical device security, but look at the totality of the ecosystem to say, hey, what does a hospital need to function? And how, and how do you keep the lights running and that? So that was my approach. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what is the reason why I made the shift. So McAfee was four years. I was running that with them. And then I joined Armist about a year ago, um, running healthcare go-to-market for them specifically on the the IOMT security and medical device security space. Okay. That's that's a, a pretty cool pretty cool journey. I had a similar one. My previous ambition in life was to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I was reminded over and over and over again that I don't like needles. <laughs> and I... <laughs> I don't like medical procedures. So maybe yeah. that wasn't the right career choice for me. And I yeah. wound up in, in cybersecurity. Similar outcome, very different experience, but the healthcare world is one that still fascinates me. Mm-hmm. Right? From a distance, I, I love it. As long as it's not happening specifically to me, <laughs> then I'm, I'm okay with it and, and just love everything about it. Where else can you go and, and experience a revolution, so to speak, right? I mean, if you look at late 90s way of how it was doing things mm-hmm. versus today, I mean, things are all of magnitude different, regardless of what healthcare environment you pick. And that's fascinating. So maybe you can talk a little bit about what are what some of those differences are, right? Earlier, you made reference to IOMT, which mm-hmm. for those unfamiliar is the Internet of Medical Things, mm-hmm. uh, one of the subcategories we use when talking about the broader umbrella of IoT, the Internet of Things. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of those changes or how are medical providers leveraging uh, IOMT uh, that's, that's different or drastic from 10 years ago? I think the, the biggest shift is the reliance on the information, right? So 10 years ago, every department, we were still not quite consolidated on electronic health records for mostly all the hospitals. So every department or specialty had their own version of that that was running. So think instead of having one Epic or one Sonar install, they had 10 different Epic uh, types of Epic solutions, one for ER, one for surgery, one mm. for ICU and stuff like that. And the surrounding devices, specifically medical devices or the infrastructure was isolated in the sense of there was a manual process of which either that device would produce information, somebody would read it and transcribe that into a system, or there was a middleware process, whether it's a file transfer or um, or some kind of batch processing that occurred that allowed automatic entry of data bidirectionally from a device into the system where a physician or a nurse would make a clinical decision, right? So that's pretty much... In, from a macro perspective, that's what's changed the most in the sense that we've now been, what, 2004 was when Meaningful Use kind of started to really uh, be talked about in 2008, 2013. It got teeth, so people got a lot of money from the federal government to say, put all this stuff in, aggregate care, make sure you consolidate all your applications so it's one system that you're navigating. So the reality is they've gone from what I spoke about was disparate systems and devices not talking to each other to today where everything is interjoined, right? So you may have the still complexity of those 30 systems, but it's inside one application portfolio. And now we have this hodgepodge mix of stuff that was running 30 years ago that still is, stuff that was purchased five years ago that's kind of sort of band-aid fixed into the, like the application process, and there's stuff that was purchased year, a year ago which is the the new innovative uh, tech for whatever specialty you're looking at 
that directly feeds into a SaaS solution that has the physician kind of making real-time determinations based on the output of the device. So that's the, in 10, in 10 to 15 years, that's the shift that healthcare organizations have come from. And when you look at the work the workflow aspect of a physician, we still have physicians that are the oldest one, maybe 60, 65, 70 years old. The youngest one, maybe 20. That's a 50-year age gap mm-hmm. of people that are leveraging these solutions. So the comfort level between that shift from going fairly manual to a fully computerized process uh, is very interesting to notice as well. So that's, the, the, that's the, I think, the biggest shift that I've seen. Uh, from a practice perspective, and that comes the whole laundry list of you could go down cybersecurity problems, you could go down effectiveness conversations too, to say, hey, we're much quicker at finding medication errors now than we were 10 years sure. ago, right? So, there, so there's a positive and negative result of that. But I think that's the that's the exciting part for me is like seeing that change happen and being a part, directly part of it, and then tangentially as well from the outside. It's been fascinating. I was just going to say, I think there's a really interesting point between, one, the quality check that you mentioned, and then earlier bias that mm-hmm. you also mentioned. So two of those things, and both of them being influenced by also kind of trust in the system. So you're mentioning a range in terms of the age of the practitioner. I'm thinking of the adoption of that, as well as mm-hmm. some of the background behind, say, trust in in some of those, say, suggested quality checks that you've gotten, that information has to also be trusted to be brought forward. And the other part of it is some of our like population really comes back around and does not trust, say, the actual data that's being handed by AI. Mm-hmm. And it, it's very interesting. I think that's a huge part right now is just to say even what that progression is going to look like in the next 10 years in terms of what are we actually trusting coming out of the system what are those checks if it's cyber or if it's just from a, you know, QNC side, but just something interesting that I was connecting between the things that you said earlier. But the, and the patient makes is changing too, right? <laughs> Hospitals, how they provided care 15 years ago are not focused in delivering care that same way. Now so you look at the urban areas versus rural areas and how we treat patients. How many of them use an app to schedule an appointment? Mm-hmm. Right, as opposed to calling a scheduling line. How many of them are using my chart today? Like the mm-hmm. or an app to look at their records or to do secondary post follow up type of thing. That's that's across all spectrums. And I think that's a fundamental view on hey, healthcare has realized that we have to switch because people will not consume it the same way given the advances in technology. So the understanding is hey, I should be able to travel to Florida get care in my home state, in my home, even with my home physician, stuff like that. But if I'm traveling to Las Vegas, they should still have my record and should be able to provide the same level of care. And I should have to call and have it sent over or CD sent over of information. But those things still exist, right? So I think that's where it's it's truly like a very interesting state in which you have this expectation of what healthcare should be switching together with tech innovation that's happening very, very quickly, whether it's in the core functionality of how a tech enables healthcare delivery, whether it's implantables, genomics, and stuff like that, or the data that that's produced, right? So, and the whole analytics and, yeah, enterprise analytics function 
is uh, is interesting. So there's when when I think about the healthcare industry and some of the things we've been talking about, I I think healthcare has this unique factor. So I'm a systems engineer mm-hmm. uh, by education and by a lot of practice at KPMG. And so thinking about the healthcare systematically, I have two types of of nodes, two types mm-hmm. of end end users. Right? Mm-hmm. There's a biological component, the mm-hmm. human patient. There's the technology components that enable the telemetry, which are really the monitoring devices for the biological nodes, Mm -hmm. for the people. Mm -hmm. It's so different from any other industry that adopts IoT Mm -hmm. because the patients are the high-value assets, right? The the outcomes are driven around how do we improve patient care, Mm -hmm. right? It's not as... It is a quantitative science, obviously, but mm-hmm. it's not as quantitative as I produced X more widgets this month because I have better vibration sensing, mm-hmm. right? It's a, I saved lives and mm-hmm. the quality of life that we're creating is better because we are adapting and bringing in new technologies. And right. to your point of, I should be able to get the same quality of care mm-hmm. wherever I am. Uh, I've seen that in my own life. When I get ready to travel abroad, my doctor mm-hmm. says, Tell me if you if you run into anything while you're out in another country, you call mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. and I will find you the medical practice, I will find you the pharmacy, and I will make sure that every all the data is there mm-hmm. and that you have exactly what you need. So mm-hmm. it's not just a I can get the same level of care. Mm-hmm. It's now my doctor is able to provide me care wherever I am. Mm-hmm. And for someone I've been going to the same GP for fifteen years, mm-hmm. I don't like change, right? Mm-hmm. My my GP knows me, knows yeah. my history. Yeah, uh, and is able to provide that same consistency to me, which mm-hmm. I think is is fantastic. Mm-hmm. You said very, you said a very interesting thing. You said quality and quantity, right? And that's one of the issues where you asked me about like what made me come over to the tech side. That was one of the reasons. Was in some cases, tech tries to abstract certain certain workflows into a common set of functionality that they can build a solution for, right? Mm-hmm. In healthcare, that's hard to do because, you're yes, you're trying to quantitatively define a patient outcome, but the processes that are used are qualitative in some cases in the way care is delivered, right? So the reason, I, the example I give is you're treating a condition, let's say the flu. There could be four doctors that treat flu four different ways with four different medications. The outcome for you is still the same. You don't have fever. You feel better. Right, but just the pathway to get there and what data you generate as part because of those workflows being different is going to affect how the technology views that encounter or that interaction. Am I that, making sense? Yeah, and that that leads me to a a question. Yeah. So is and it, I'll I'll break this into a couple of parts. Are some of those different courses of treatment for ident- so let's say identical diagnoses? Mm-hmm. Is that dictated by the types of analysis those doctors perform? Is it dictated by the types of data points they're gathering? And then the third part is, will IOMT enable more consistency or uniformity in those diagnostic processes and treatment plans mm-hmm. as the data becomes more uniform uh, and available to the, the practitioners? I'll answer your third question first is the the utopian goal is yes right the it's it's a, it's a the reason IMT is here is to hopefully improve data confidence or provide a much richer sample set for a decision to be made this is prime example is um 
lab samples, right, for cancer identification, right, cancer mm-hmm. cell identification, and specifically how Google's AI, for example, helps radio- radiologists and um, and lab uh, lab pe- folks figure out, hey, from a sa- pathology sample perspective, how quickly can I compare this to what I would traditionally have to do is compare it to a manual effort or manual picture or something like that to now I can digitally compare this sample to millions of records to get a 99% confidence that says that, yes, this sample is cancerous as opposed to a 75% confidence that I would have in the past, right? So to your point, answer to your question number three, is the function of IMMT to improve care? Absolutely. And I believe that is the correct, correct way to design those things. Are we to a point where that can be achieved given the issues with workflow and data governance that we have, nomenclature, the, the issues of closed close loop systems controlling access to information in our current healthcare environment? No. And, and that's going to be a financial question in the sense of the way our system is designed in this country is it's at its very core, yes, it's mission-centric, but healthcare is a business. They have to manage their margins to be able to provide care. So so there has to be a money conversation that has is whether it's between the health systems, whether it's between the health systems and govern, government, whether it's between the health system and the software manufacturer that holds monopolies in this space to say, hey, how do you share data across the board? Because that is what I think in my belief, that's because of lack of open standards and communication. It is creating silos with how the data is confined and stored. So hmm. when it's pulled out to do the analysis that you would essentially cr- create a third-party AI or ML capability that would do that, what you said in case number two, right? How do I how do I take information that the IMT is generating and combine it with the stuff I have to make a usable data set across the board? I don't think we're there, and I don't see a good pathway there without c- joint government essentially some kind of regulation that says you boys in the software space, you have to play nice and give up your, give up some of your tech, not tech, but like give access, access to your information, the stuff that you're holding and let the health systems figure out a way to share information. We tried that like in 2012, 2010 with the national health and information networks. Remember back in the day and hence some States did it. Some States didn't type of thing. It was, and then it kind of died died after 2018. So I'm jaded in that way. I, I'm not. I don't see a a good avenue forward outside of somebody essentially creating a construct that makes it feasible for the health systems to invest the effort to open up Pandora's box and allow that information to to be interchanged. Or to answer your first question, is somebody creates a third party abstraction layer, which could be a business opportunity, essentially to create a data mart across this across the space to to be able to achieve that it's very interesting because i personally am just so different from you brad i've moved different states i've gone to possibly every different hospital that i can i do not have a primary care physician (laughs) that knows me you know by name i meet a new person practically every time that i go But it's very interesting to hear from my side, being somebody that does expect, I expect there to be that connection. The other side of it is I also recognize that they're still waiting to fax my records. But on the kind of forward thinking side of it, something interesting that you're bringing up in my mind is we have a lot of passion and interest in AI and machine learning. 
But yeah. when we look at how you set up a successful use case for that that doesn't actually hurt you, it ends up being that you have to understand, one, that the use case is defined. And while we have a mission, which is to provide a higher quality of care for all mm-hmm. individuals, you struggle with the fact that the inputs there are not fully transparent. It's like you don't have an inventory of everyone as well as I'm thinking about the, you know, services that are offered. It's not to everyone the same. So I, yeah, go ahead. No, no. And it's also not coordinated as well. So to to your point, um, one of the things that, uh, um, that Brad talked about earlier, right? It, it was the difference between the, what do you call it? The biological and the data? What was the second element? Biological and technolo- technology. Bi- facts. Technology, right? So, Christy, you bring a very interesting point is, yes, the use cases are there and they actually have been defined. The problem is they're defined in pockets, right? So when you look at our country, there's what? I would say eight or 10 healthcare innovation areas, like geographical areas where this occurs, right? North Carolina, Austin, Tennessee, Boston, New York, California, like those are the hubs where everybody else kind of looks at what's going on, which is fine. I think there's a scale conversation that happens is innovation is happening at all different types of health systems that is breeding these use cases that are fostering technology growth that Brad, you're talking about, right? It's, it's boiled from the biological output and then it's mapped to a technology to see how can we do this at scale. The breakdown that occurs is either from a specialty perspective to say, hey, there's too much variation in the nuances of how that specialty is performed, whether it's pharmacy, whether it's radiology, whether it's you you go down the stack in in that between two health systems in the same innovation area. Right. So I'll take example of Nashville. You could have something very innovative happening in an organization that's owned by HCA. And you could have a practice that's happening in a hospital that's owned by LifePoint. Technically, they're both in the same specialty. They're trying to drive the same outcomes. But if I'm a technology provider, when I go in and look at, to your point, Christy, when I look at the use case, yeah, the use case is the same. Inputs are kind of the same too. But for me to build workflow to do that, it's completely different between the two organizations. And that's the issue that I think I've seen personally drive issues in healthcare systematically is there's so much variations to technology, like what you're saying, Brad, in how we implement tech and what it means and how we transition tech from, lack of a better word, how they've been running it since the late 90s, early 2000s, even today, to how you migrated to something that would run in 2022, right, where we need to go. So... That, that's where I think it's it's that catch-all of do we have specialty? Absolutely, we have specialties in th- in therapy uh, like um, post-traumatic stress disorders. We have we have radio- radiological use cases for image recognition that are being that are leveraging AI. We have pharmacy automation that's leveraging robotics. Even environmental services. I've seen automatic soap dispensers right no- notifying um, a centralized station of volume level of hand washing status and stuff like that like are your staff doing it robotics for meal delivery so so the, you see these things that are there i'm struggling to find a good pathway for hospitals to be able to share information because they're not designed to do that there's still competitive stuff there there's still financial pressures there 
what is the incentive? What, what should be the incentive through which we can achieve better outcomes? You know, it's a great question. Um, I'll, and I'll be very quick to admit that what I would offer is a very unqualified opinion, right, on, on, this, <laughs> on this exact space. <laughs> One of the big challenges I see is uh, federal regulation or just regulation in general, mm-hmm. right? For I got asked a question once when I was presenting a panel or I was on a panel for um, an OT operational technology uh, survey. Mm-hmm. And uh, the question was, do I think that uh, regulatory standards help or hinder security? Mm-hmm. And after after thinking for a minute, uh, it's it's a bit of both, right? The, mm-hmm. the reality is that it's a bit of both. It, the first the first thing it does is it automatically helps, right? Now you can qualify that help however you want, but it sets that a minimum baseline, correct? Right? Of for companies that are not currently performing or don't have mm-hmm. uh, don't have the support, now you have a, a, a use case, a business case mm-hmm. to say, we need support, we need funding, we need resources to bring at least this level of security, mm-hmm. right? Now, it also hinders because then it sets that as like, well, that's all we have to do, mm-hmm. right? The powers that be who have decided that these are the requirements, they know better than us, and they say, this is what we need and nothing more. Mm-hmm. And so I think long-term, mm-hmm. there it does stifle and hinder cybersecurity, mm-hmm. Uh, but I think with, especially when it comes to the medical industry, mm-hmm. there's so many regulations around how to protect patient data, how mm-hmm. to protect, uh, the commercialization data, your IP, yes. right. For research and development, medications, mm-hmm. all of that is so wrapped up in patent law yep. and, and tied together that the system has so many different requirements yep. that you have to satisfy in that interchange of data mm-hmm. that it's. Uh, it's it's a non-simple task to do and to do correctly. So I don't think that there's a lack of willingness mm-hmm. by medical practitioners mm-hmm. to share patient data, right? Because ultimately they want the best outcome for their patient, whether that Correct. be with them or with a specialist or whatever it happens to be. Correct. Uh, but it's definitely not an easy path for them to go down and, and share that data. I was just going to say, so it's interesting to me because when you do see like controls put in place, Mm -hmm. what is not coming from regulation always has to be that there's some level of operational gain Mm -hmm. or advantage that you're giving that company. And I I don't want to just say that healthcare is functioning as a business, but oftentimes they function as a business. They're Mm -hmm. looking for an edge. They still compete with each other. So when I think about what drives change that's not Mm -hmm. regulation, Mm -hmm. what I come back to is operationally those workflows have to be mm-hmm. so enticing and so good that they're now saying, you know, this answer is a problem and this is how I see it is mm-hmm. there's a, you know, the staff level with surgeons, with kind of these in-demand healthcare service mm-hmm. providers, mm-hmm. what they're struggling with right now comes back to we don't have the time to give that high quality care or maybe mm-hmm. they have that high quality care, but how many can they get to the hospital as a business mm-hmm. could look at it as if we operated with these, these like platforms and these workflows, we could see our teams coming out, but there would need to be such a good market proposition out there that all hospitals are now aware of it. And that is something that I find hard to get disseminated across every hospital when it is, like you said, it's so many different hubs. And then you look at 
an area of the states that's completely blacked out too. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a use. You made a very interesting point, right? For for me, the way I look at that is it's two two approaches. Brad, I'm going to come back to you. I one thing I want to comment on what you were saying. Um, you said, Christy, that there's a pathway to visibility, right, into what a process efficiency looks like, right, or a, a positive outcome. I think there, there's two in what I've seen is there's two things that are that are happening in the industry. One, the whole data analytics function, right, started out as reporting to essentially justify how electronic health records are being used, and now it's transformed into, hey, we have much, much higher treasure trove of information in there than just checking if a physician dictated notes properly in there, right? Let's look at that to see are we effectively providing care, whether it's patient wait times, length of stay, and stuff like that. That's one side of it. Brad, to your point on the security side of it, right, when you look at medical device security, I see a confluence of those two happening. So what's what's happened is medical device security was kind of brought, it's not a new topic, right? It's, you and I probably know it's been talked about since the late 90s. So it's not in, theoretically a new topic, but what brought to light was it showcased the dependence that clinical operations has to now the nuances of software workflow. Mm. Right, so so they they no longer siloed in the way that if OR gets affected, then ER is still functioning, right? If registration is affected, you could still go do downtime processes and still function as an institution. That window has kind of gone away. So now you're stuck with this chasm of how can I take information from the electronic health record that helps me improve how I provide care, combine that with how can I protect devices that are feeding information into my electronic health record that I need to make decisions on. What has happened is when we've started to go down that path, three years ago, the conversation was just around visibility. Let's figure out what we have, right? When we did that, a tangential use case appeared about two and a half years ago, which was utilization data, right? So this would be the example of, hey, my electronic, my PAC system together with my core EHR tells me how I'm doing radiology, how am I leveraging my CTs and MRIs. But if I have medical device, a solution like medical device security solution that actually provides me with actual session times in real time to say in five days I do 50 scans and these are the type of scans that are being performed, I could backtrace, I could backtrace that through my revenue cycle and actually have a very objective figure on what an impact would be from a risk perspective that would impact revenue and patient satisfaction because now I have the appropriate time of a scan, how many scans I'm doing in a day. And if I have decent enough people that can code this, I can pretty much calculate what the impact of each one of those um, procedures is financially, revenue speaking. So so that's where I see like there's a confluence that's occurring in the in, in this space where security is starting to have the conversations with, I would call it the CMIOs and the COs of the organizations to say, hey, there's valuable data that we can provide that can help contextualize what you're trying to do. The adjusting factor is it's it's like alert fatigue. There's a lot of information that's coming at them. Plus, it's also coming at them from a not medical device as well. So one example, I like I was having conversations with a colleague of mine a month ago, and we were talking about 
patient safety versus patient satisfaction. Yes, there is a obvious potential impact to safety if a medical device gets compromised, right? Whether it's the newest type or an integrated connected medical device, let's call it that. Would you label it higher priority than an elevator system in your high-rise that holds your OR suites and ICUs going down so you can't move patients? It's a very poignant case and argument to be made. And I'm going to layer something on top of here. Yeah. The Pwned Piper set of vulnerabilities, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Pwned Piper, the set of nine vulnerabilities that mm-hmm. were uh, inherent to a pneumatic tube system so that is deployed across 3, mm-hmm. hosp- more than 3,000 hospitals mm-hmm. worldwide, mm-hmm. right? And these pneumatic tube systems, PTSs, yeah. they, they, they are the, we'll use a medical, they are the veins and arteries that run the hospital, I was going to say the same orders, thing. <laughs> uh, all of the the scan requests, like everything goes through these tubes. Medications get passed through these tubes. Mm-hmm. And with Pwned Piper, this mm-hmm. gave uh, critical uh, – it was a critical flaw mm-hmm. that allowed remote code execution. There mm-hmm. were hard-coded administrator passwords mm-hmm. that allow, could have allowed uh, and may have allowed a, an attacker to take over what they called a nexus station, right? One of the central operating stations of this right. pneumatic tube system. Right. Now these nexuses are deployed throughout the mm-hmm. facility. So you could hop from one to the next, to the next, to the next, mm-hmm. take down the pneumatic tube system mm-hmm. and turn a hospital from a leading cutting edge <laughs> 21st century hospital into a, the, the 1900s where you yep. have doctors running up and down hallways, nurses running up and down, down hallways, delivering medications, delivering paper charts, delivering updated orders, mm-hmm. right? And so when you talk about patient safety versus uh, patient satisfaction, mm-hmm. like if the pneumatic tube system goes down or while it might be on, on the surface critical to people in the, in the healthcare and medical world, something yes. like that is not visibly critical to a patient. Correct. Right? I care more like, is the MRI down? Right? Correct. Do I have to wait six hours for a scan in a wheelchair Correct. in a hallway? Correct. Right? Or do I care that my the doctor has to run four miles each direction to Correct. take things from room to room? Mm-hmm. Right? Now, as I was doing uh, some other research, right, Ponemon published a report in 2020 about mm-hmm. healthcare hack statistics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I found was that 54% of healthcare providers were open enough to say, we have suffered a breach of at least one patient record, mm-hmm. right? which I think is a very generous way to put it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when you look at 54% saying they suffered a breach of at least one record, and then mm-hmm. you look at the average, the average is uh, approximately 10,000 patient records in a cost mm-hmm. of $2.75 million, mm-hmm. right? So 54% of all health care providers mm-hmm. resulted in 10,000 patient records and $2.75 million in loss mm-hmm. on average from a breach. Mm-hmm. Right? I think that's a crazy amount of money. Mm-hmm. that's involved in the loss, a crazy amount of patient data that's involved. Mm-hmm. And it can happen through these uh, seemingly non-critical or non-core medical functions yes. like the pneumatic tube systems. Yes. Right. And you talked earlier about uh, visibility being mm-hmm. something that, that needed to happen. And it was a big push. I've got three, three primary uh, ideas of, of problems that mm-hmm. medical currently faces. Mm-hmm. One is there's legacy problems. Mm-hmm. Right, like any environment that has a type of operational technology, be it IoT enabled or or traditional uh, process automation, there's going to be legacy issues. Mm-hmm. Now, what I what I've learned is that things like MRIs and CAT scans, 
those are some of the most egregious legacy problems, right? Because they have uh, generally custom-coded, purpose-driven mm-hmm. OSs mm-hmm. that were designed for minimal networking, if any, and they are long-term devices, right? A hospital buys an MRI, they're going to keep it and service it until it's no longer serviceable. Mm-hmm. So there are MRIs that might be 15, 20, 25 years old. Mm-hmm. They still produce the same picture. There might be mm-hmm. better, higher quality MRI machines, but until you've used that one up, it's going to stick around. Yep. Right? So lots of legacy debt, yep. right? Legacy technology debt. Mm-hmm. Then there's the limited visibility, mm-hmm. right? You've got generational assets and technologies that exist within hospitals mm-hmm. uh, that have to be, that have now been combined into networks. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're not uh, equipped with the latest and greatest. You can't pull data from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't put an agent on it, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of IoT is small, lightweight devices like a glucose monitor or uh, maybe a legacy imaging device. There's just not mm-hmm. that much compute power, so you cannot mm-hmm. add an agent. So Correct. maybe you're limited to network data at best, Correct. right, if you've got access to, to a, a low enough switch. Mm-hmm. And then there's the difficulties with repairs. And I'm, physical mm-hmm. repairs aside, mm-hmm. the technology repairs, right, mm-hmm. the, the – Operating system repairs with purpose-built OSs mm-hmm. and firmwares. Sometimes the update mechanism is go reinstall the firmware, mm-hmm. and there's no centralized mechanism for it because we only have three of these machines. They were never designed for central management, mm-hmm. but now we have. Now we're part of a system that has a hundred hospitals. Mm-hmm. Now we've got a thousand of these machines mm-hmm. that we have to service over time. Mm-hmm. Right? Those three challenges mm-hmm. are both unique to OT, but also very specific to, to medical, the mm-hmm. medical industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you see a solution or, or what, what are some of the actions that companies can do uh, to mitigate some of the risk associated with those issues? First of all, you can't fix it all with one solution. Oh, would that we right. could. So, so no, I, I mean, yes, yes, I would, I would like to say there is, but there is not. P- part of the reason is to that talks with the whole conversation we've been having is the the balance between quality and quantit- qualitative and quantitative analysis in healthcare goes up and down depending upon the mm-hmm. situation, right? So, the way I would recommend it is understanding what you have is the first thing, which is not hard to do. That's almost a commoditized functionality at this point. Right, there's any any technology capability will give you a good enough picture on what you have in environment. You what you want to do is make sure you understand not just one specific nuance of a type of device. You want to understand the entirety of the ecosystem that you're leveraging to align to your patient's journey. Right. So when I say patient's journey, essentially understanding that hey, if I'm at let's say if I'm at Rush University in Chicago, right. For Rush University, the way I deliver care to my patient, there's a process from the time the patient's admitted to the time they're just discharged. Understanding what points of ecosystem happens from an interaction data flow perspective will help you isolate scope from a where, where do I need to put cycles to invest in this because this is a space where you will affect workflow of clinicians. You will affect workflow that's institutionalized has been there for 20, 30, 40 years in your organization. So you want to make sure you have a very introspectively honest approach on what your organization can handle, both from a risk perspective, from an outcome, patient patient risk, patient outcomes, patient safety, and clinical quality perspective. Those are the four pillars outside of compliance that I would leverage as a context lens to say, 
for my health system, these four specialties are what my I'm hedging my bets on for margin, let's say, for the next two years. So I'm going to focus my efforts to securing that part of it or make that part as, as resilient as I can, understanding that these processes that you talked about, medical device security, uh, safety, life cycle, device life cycle for OT, OT exists in healthcare as well, right? So bringing together the teams, this is not a security initiative. This is a security-led initiative that's organizational in nature. So you have to pull in biomed. You have to pull in facilities. You have to pull in the CMIO and CNIO because there's clinical workflow impacts that are going to happen when you take action on a threat or on a vulnerability that's reported once you do this properly. So that would be my first foray is to limit the scope because if you try to do this like across the board, there is no amount of money and people that you can get to fix this problem quickly. Mm-hmm. Limiting the scope will also manage you, will help you manage time to value, right? So this is where you could potentially estimate that for an inpatient specialty like surgery, it took me X amount of time to do this. For a outpatient area like plastic surgery, this is the amount of time that it took. If I'm an ophthalmology practice, this is the amount of time. If I'm a dental practice, this is the amount of time, right? So helping you isolate that will 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 help create a structured approach that you can do and then expand from there. And not expand as in like go out or magnitude crazy, putting this across the board. Expand in a sequential way that's, again, aligned very specifically to how you treat your patients across the board. And there's departments there that have this information today. Clinical quality does this all day long, right? They measure patient satisfaction. Pay, uh, revenue cycle can help as well for reimbursement rates. So if you have a financial lens you're trying to make, there's a lot of data that you can leverage as a pivot point to be able to articulate the pain points for a specific leadership persona that you're talking to, right? Talking dollars to a physician is not going to matter, but talking clin- If you tell a physician, I'm going to add t- 20 seconds to your workflow every encounter, they will listen. Mm-hmm. If for a CFO, if you say 20 seconds, they don't, don't really care, but they will take revenue impact, right? So the ability to have that information is very, very important. So those are the two areas that I would strongly suggest institutions to look at. The third one, leverage partnerships. This is a very difficult and thing that you're going to undertake, and that will never stop. It's almost, I would, I would put it on the scale of identity management, like once you start, it never stops type of thing, is... Uh, Leverage partnerships, whether it's advisory partnerships, technology partnerships to get you up and running to make sure the data flows are occurring properly, or security partnerships, because not every security service provider has capability to respond to an incident where medical devices and OT are impacted, right? So having a view to say, hey, how do I navigate that, given your limitations on what you can spend is very, very important. So so that would be the third one is leverage those partnerships to help you achieve the goals that you've set. Don't let compliance drag this. Compliance dragging this, to your point, Brad, it's, it's, it gives you a guardrail on what's needed, but it doesn't tell you on what you need to fix for your institution. And in my opinion, these solutions, like this, this whole space is ripe for, I would say, growing up because in its infancy, it was just showing what you have. But now this, we all have realized that, hey, there's a lot more utilization stuff we can do with it. 
we can integrate with EHRs. We, there's a lot of capability that's coming downstream that you can leverage to help improve clinical outcomes because all the solutions in this space are very lightweight. So the path, the barrier to entry is very low uh, and time to value is very, very low as well. So, so I would say those th- kind of three things would help you chart a course. The more, most important being, please, please, please look at your own workflow don't look at the peer down the street on what they're doing <laughs> because they could be completely different. So look at your workflow and identify what's wrong because the, the systems that you're going to try to secure will require that. That's some great, some great points there. I think, you know, your, your last point there of don't look at your peers and try yeah. and copy their workflow, mm-hmm. right? It's unique to their technology profile. And that, I, I think that's probably a very universal truth, mm-hmm. right? Is, uh, as consultants, we get asked all the time, well, what are my peers doing? How are they addressing this problem? And I, I can tell you all day long what they're doing. It doesn't make it the right fit necessarily for that organization or for right. that, that particular problem. Right. Uh, so uh, I appreciate those, those wise words. Uh, <laughs> Sumit, it's been great talking to you. This has been a really enlightening conversation, and I, I appreciate all of the insights and, and information shared with us. Thank you. My pleasure. And thank you for the opportunity for having us on board with you. Looking forward to hopefully some more in the future.